there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 90, White Siberia. If there has been one part of the Russian Civil War that I've been dancing around for weeks now, it's definitely the vast expanses of the country east of the Ural Mountains. If you've listened to the Japan episodes covering the Siberian expedition, you're probably familiar with at least part of the setting. Russian power over the region was based on the Trans-Siberian Railway, which formed the connective artery for the line of cities that were strung out from the Urals to the Pacific coast. And I use artery in the singular. There wasn't another effective means of travel across Russian Asia. North of the railway were mind-bogglingly huge tracks of forests and swamps, and during the winter you could expect brutal cold. To the south was another vast expanse, that of Central Asia. Neither direction away from the railroad would make for a terribly pleasant trip. Infrastructure in the region was terrible. That being said, life wasn't wholly desolate in Russian Asia. While the winters were harsh, the growing season was there, and land was plentiful. This had sparked colonization drives in the last generations that lived under the Tsars, which in turn boosted urbanization. Granted, the distances involved between cities was immense, but clusters of industry and urban life was there. And as is typical of settler communities, they had a stronger independent streak to them than seen further to the west. And that urbanized population was going to prove useful to the Bolsheviks in the months after the October 1917 revolution. Radicalized soldiers returning home, traveling Red Guards, and enterprising Bolsheviks all took to the rails and fanned out to the cities of Siberia taking over their Soviets and administrations, just as they did in Russia's core. There really wasn't a whole lot to stop them, and as discussed in the Japanese episodes, the Whites' attempts at using Manchuria as a base to invade the Far East didn't go anywhere when they weren't backed by foreign arms. There was an early attempt at establishing a non-Bolshevik Siberian government, as in October 1917 there was held an all-Siberian congress in the city of Tomsk, That's the city of Tomsk with a T, not to be confused with the also-Siberian city of Omsk with just an O. They're both going to be notable, so just getting ahead of that potential confusion. Anyway, a Siberian regional Duma was supposed to be established in February 1918, but the Red Guards caught wind of the idea and scattered the prospective government in January, arresting those they could get their hands on. A rump body did manage to meet clandestinely and declare a provisional Siberian government, which on paper was SR-dominated and would try and work to spread its influence through eastern Siberia. Many, though, elected to avoid working underground and headed further east, towards Harbin and Manchuria, where General Horvat was playing court with the exiles of the Far East. This would be where one Peter Derber would come in as leader of the provisional Siberian government in that area, although in practice it was yet another government on paper and didn't really control anything. In Harbin, the Russians courted the Entente for aid and played a game to secure the maximum amount of backing without making too many promises, ones that they couldn't really keep in practice. This was most applicable to the dealings with the Japanese, which made sense given the enmity between the two empires and the fear that Japan would make territorial demands later on if they were too helpful working with the anti-Bolsheviks. This balancing act also meant that actual progress towards entering Siberia was practically non-existent, with only General Semenov's tiny ad hoc unit taking the fight to the Reds in early 1918, and then losing very badly in the process. 
he's kind of small potatoes in the grand scheme of things, so I won't be zooming back in on him anytime soon. You'll remember Semenov from episodes 57 to 59 as a local warlord who led a multi-ethnic outfit intent on seizing the city of Cheetah, east of Lake Baikal. He's kind of small potatoes in the grand scheme of things, so I won't be covering his story again. The foreign support was also lopsided towards the conservative officers, and Peter Derber's moderate socialist government was left with little aid to build a civilian administration. Early on, it seemed as though Lenin wouldn't have to fear fighting a war out east. All the groups I just described were flimsy things who were incapable of independent action. But then came the Czech Legion. I want to break up again that the reason I'm lingering on the Russian Civil War is because of how terribly destructive it was, and how it stunted the Soviet Union from the moment of its birth, which drove many of its later actions. And oh boy, it is really impressive how a group of less than 60,000 Czechs 1,500 miles away from their home, managed to actually ensure the whole conflict got off the ground. Because without them, the Kamuch would not have taken off, and the Whites sure as hell wouldn't have had the same success in the East. And the whole Siberian expedition might not have happened, given that the Americans only came around to the idea to help bail the Czechs out. Anyway, you know the story by now already. The Czechs were stranded, and then decided the best way to get back home was across Siberia, where they could be shipped by boat, back across the planet to Europe. It's a testament to how crazy those days were that that sounded reasonable. And of course, it didn't work the way people wanted it to. The Czechs were hostile to the Bolsheviks, and the Soviets of the Siberian towns they were set to pass through on their way back home were leery as all hell to let them go through. The limitations of the Trans-Siberian only being one single railway meant that the entire legion was strung out across the railway from the core of Russia to Vladivostok. This isolation made the Czech officers scared and left everyone on edge, as many Czechs started to suspect they were going to be ambushed with their group so scattered. Then came the incident in Chelyabinsk in late May 1918, and the local Czech detachment took over the town, which put the kibosh on the whole leaving Russia deal and convinced the Czechs to be proactively anti-Bolshevik. The legion rapidly fanned out and took over the entire railroad, as I discussed back in episode 58, it's entirely possible that the Legion was working at the direction of the Entente, as the Czechs certainly seemed primed to take over the whole extent of the Trans-Siberian. Whatever the case was, the results were spectacular. Within three months, the Czechs seized a span of track that would have started 300 miles east of New York and ended 1,000 miles west of San Francisco if projected onto a map of the United States. The exact thing that the Siberian Soviets had been so frightened of had come to pass, and the Red Forces had been forced to flee to the rugged territory north and south of the railway. And while this opened up Western interest in rebooting the Eastern Front by sending troops through the Urals, the Czechs themselves were well aware they were dangerously exposed. And the vacuum they created allowed every local city government a chance to set up their own regimes. You're already familiar with the Kamuch government based in Samara to the west of the Urals, but elsewhere in the eastern foothills of those mountains, in the city of Ekaterinburg, a government of the Urals was established on July 25, 1918. In Omsk, the Western Siberian Commissariat was established as early as May 26th as a moderately socialist regime, but was dissolved and replaced on June 23rd with a more right-wing government. In July, Peter Derber and the Provisional Siberian Government, which had been hanging out in Manchuria, set up shop in Vladivostok and resumed their claim to speak for the whole of Siberia and the Far East. 
because the PSG name would be co-opted by the OMS government later on, they rebranded as the Provisional Government of Autonomous Siberia, or PJAS. Oh, hey, don't bother remembering any of this nomenclature. Just understand that Siberia in mid-1918 was a train wreck. General Semenov set himself up in Cheetah and its surrounding area as a warlord, as did Adaman Kalmykov of the far eastern Ussuri Cossacks, who took over Khabarovsk on September 17th. Of those last two, both were brutal men, but Kalmykov was a notorious psychopath. He murdered prisoners, looted surrounding villages, treated his own men so terribly they deserted, and even had his artillery fire upon Chinese gunboats patrolling the Amur River. The predations helped convince the population to support the Bolsheviks when they eventually came back. But that won't be for a while, and with the embryonic Red Army firmly held down fighting along the Volga River, their rivals had free reign to the east. Not that all these governments were friends, mind you. Out of all of them, Omsk provisional Siberian government was the strongest, and the Entente were anxious for them to join with the Kamuch government further west in July 1918. Keep in mind, these were the days when the Kamuch and their Czech allies were seizing towns all across the northern Volga region, and as a result, they demanded a place of superiority in any joint government. The Omsk government, on the other hand, had alienated the Kamuch by demanding the Soviets be dissolved, all seized land be returned, not just some of it, and local government curtailed. Remember, the Kamuch government got in trouble with the masses by partially backpedaling social reforms in favor of the bourgeois. Now, the Omsk government was taking that mindset several steps further, which was just another example in the short-sighted nature of every white faction. The Bolsheviks were never the most popular group in Russia during the Civil War, but they were the ones who recognized what the people were demanding and were prepared to give it to them, albeit on their terms and subject to revisions down the road. The whites were upfront that they were going to roll back the social clock and they crippled their own popular support as a result. By September 1918, the Kamuch government was unraveling, which also meant they had to deal with the Omsk faction at a sudden disadvantage. On the 8th of that month, the two factions met in the city of Ufa and attempted to hammer out an accord. But over two weeks, they fell into squabbling over how to set up a joint government. The Omsk government wanted to elect a new constituent assembly in the east, while the Kamuch wanted to keep the voting results of the old one from earlier that year which was fair because while the Constituent Assembly might be, you know, four podcast episodes ago, it was only nine months removed in real time, and was also, you know, kind of a big deal in their minds. The decision was made to create an assembly based on the old results, where if a quorum was reached by the start of the new year, 1919, then it would be considered the valid government, which was not only impractical as getting the assembly together again through war-torn Russia posed a huge challenge, the situation was moving so fast that by 1919, conditions could be totally different and the deal would be moot, which is exactly what happened. Again, the short-sightedness of the Whites was on full display here, as they wasted time and goodwill on legal trivialities. The main byproduct of the conference was the formation of a five-man directory, which would manage the local governments of the East in what was called the Provisional All-Russian Government, or the PARG, which, in a victory for the conservatives, was based in Omsk. Allied with the new government were the Orenburg, Ural, and four Siberian Cossack hosts. While the Kamuch was being overwhelmed in the west, the PARG's Siberian army was slowly starting to come online and would be 40,000 strong by September 1918. The whites in this region were helped by the fact that the West Siberian military district of the old army had stayed intact, 
a rare example where they got to inherit the Old Order stuff instead of the Reds. With the army growing, a plan started to develop to strike northwards. Yes, this was at the same time that Krasnov and the Don Cossacks were making their first bid for Tsaritsyn, but it was also at the same time that the Entente were moving into Archangel, and the Siberians were very interested in making a connection via the city of Perm. Personally, that sounds insane due to the distances involved and the frozen forests separating them, but I'm just a guy who has never lost a Russian civil war. Whatever the plan was, the internal political situation was actually more important in fall 1918. The moderate socialists absolutely hated the PARG and refused to go along with the government. Meanwhile, the conservatives questioned whether the five-man directory could actually govern and feared the presence of the SRs would sabotage their efforts to dismantle the revolution. Luckily for the deeply conservative officers, the Entente were on their side, and the British leaned on the region's Cossacks to help install their hand-picked leader to assume command of the government. On the night of November 17, 1918, a unit of Cossacks arrested attendees of an SR meeting in Omsk. The directory met to discuss what to do the next morning, but decided that opposing the military would only endanger themselves in the name of a government nobody liked anyway. They handed the keys over to Admiral Alexander Kolchak, who had been serving as their minister of war, and now assumed the position of head of state and supreme ruler. If anything could properly encapsulate the crisis of credible leadership among the whites, it's that the eastern front of the Civil War, which was fought in one of the most landlocked regions of the world, was commanded by an admiral. Which, if you're wondering why people were so big on Kolchak, it's simply because he held a high rank and was dead set on beating the Bolsheviks. Actual experience with ground command didn't matter, and the fact that Kolchak was a belligerent asshole didn't matter either. At first. It was probably either him or General Horvat, and Horvat had already proven his incompetence by being chased away from Siberia by the Japanese when everybody else were setting up personal fiefdoms. The coup itself was painless. The five-man directory was shuffled off into foreign exile, and the rest of the OMS government fell in line without a fuss. The SRs, who had done so much to undermine the previous PARG, was now staring down the barrel of government, far less inclined to entertain notions of democracy or representation. It was a military dictatorship now. The one attempt by the SRs to meet up and discuss what to do next was broken up by the Siberian army, which had no problem working for Kolchak. Thus, deprived of their last basis of support, the SRs would largely fade from the picture, having once been the most popular political movement in all of Russia. If they had an epitaph, it would probably read something like, never seize power when they had a half-dozen chances to do it. Kolchak was going to be far more decisive, and once the winter snows melted and the campaign season for 1919 got underway, he looked forward to collapsing Red Russia from all directions in conjunction with the other fronts. But before I close out on 1918, there is still a little area I have to cover. And by little, I only say that when compared to Siberia, and that's Central Asia. This area was in all reality also gigantic, and also suffered from a lack of infrastructure. But whereas following events in Siberia is pretty easy because the major stuff follows a sort of straight line, the communities of Central Asia were just as isolated, but even more scattered across all four cardinal directions. Another characteristic of the region was the low population density. Like Siberia, urban areas were the exception, not the norm, and the region's 1.5 million square miles supported only 14 million inhabitants. 
And while both Siberia and Central Asia were considered areas open to Russian settlement and colonization, it was in the latter that the Russians were a stark minority, reaching 20% of the population in the northern areas and as low as 10-5% to in the more southern reaches. And while those minorities weren't even united, like say in July 1918 when local Mensheviks and SRs overthrew the Bolshevik authorities and set up their own government on the southern edge of Russian Asia, the Red appeals to the much more numerous local inhabitants proved to be far more useful in the long term. It also probably didn't help that the resulting Transcaspian Republic, set up along the frontier with Persia, rapidly made itself unpopular by requisitioning the countryside's grain. That outfit was reduced to scattered city governments and was therefore a sitting duck when the Reds came back to the region in 1919. As on the western and eastern frontiers of the empire, the Bolsheviks were willing to make tactical concessions that would seemingly go against their interests if it weren't for the fact that the area in question was already outside their grasp by and large. And Central Asia's population, never reconciled to the Russian yoke in the first place, was feeling out what was possible with the collapse of centralized authority. As I covered back in episode 82, the region had gone through a major revolt during World War I that had sent shockwaves among the communities there, and now was their chance to force a new relationship with the Russians. Early on in the revolution in November 1917, the Bolsheviks had promised the peoples there the opportunity to freely determine their own course, which was part of that program of national self-determination that had been extended to Finland and the Baltics. Though, of course, the Bolsheviks were intending on standing idly by while the vast tracts of territory in Central Asia slipped through their fingers. And through 1918, they worked at building up and organizing the communist presence in the area. But there was an already established reformist movement in the region that was actually homegrown, the Jadids. Their platform was straightforwardly modernist, as they aspired to catch the region up educationally, technologically, and socially. The Jadids in Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and among the Volga Tartars saw in the collapse of Russia a golden opportunity to push their reformist agenda against mounting opposition from the local Islamic religious establishment. That establishment, the ulema, feared a secular society cutting out their place of influence in everyday life, as well as the pan-Turkic beliefs of the Jadids superseding their Islamic identity. And as the Bolsheviks published the secret treaties Tsarist Russia had made with the Entente, promising it even more Turkic lands at the expense of the Ottoman Empire, the Jadidist movement adopted an anti-imperialist stance against all the colonial empires who had made such treaties. So while the Jadids were at heart moderates at best, they threw in their lot with the Bolsheviks as they were the only ones fighting against the regimes threatening to gobble up Turkish and Muslim territory. This was a boon for the Reds as the Jadids formed a 50,000-man Muslim army in the region, which agreed to join with the Red Army. That was the biggest force in the region, and fairly large as early Civil War armies went. With just a little bit of diplomacy and recognizing local grievances, Lenin had ensured Central Asia was not just going to be non-threatening, it was going to be potentially an ally. That being said, the Bolsheviks' relations with Muslims were mostly favorable only in areas where Russians themselves were in the minority. In Kazan, back in the Russian core, for example, February 1918 saw the Volga Tatars living there trying to form their own autonomous state. But it being right there in the heart of Russia meant the Kazan Soviets sent in troops and shut those efforts down. And where Russians were able to predominate in Central Asia, they also asserted their authority violently. On February 5, 1918, the Red Government of Tashkent in eastern Uzbekistan sent a small army to Kukand, where moderate Jadids had formed their own autonomous government of Turkestan. 
The Russians were in no mood to tolerate rivals so close by and made an example out of them, killing over half of the city's inhabitants and burning most of it to the ground. Local Russian settlers got so out of control terrorizing their neighbors that Moscow was forced to take notice, sending in personnel to set up a Turkestan Autonomous Socialist Republic that would at least include local leaders and head off a full-on uprising against the Bolsheviks. However, this new government would only further alienate the populace by going after religious authorities and institutions, which even among the secular Jadids commanded respect and were still considered cultural cornerstones. The excesses in eastern Uzbekistan encouraged tens of thousands to join in guerrilla groups that harassed the Russians and their allies in the area. This was less an ideological battle than it was we want those foreign colonizers out of here completely kind of battle. And of course, due to the whites' own inability to make any kind of compromise on their vision of restoring Russian supremacy, they failed to capitalize on anti-Bolshevik sentiment in the area. Which for them was yet another missed opportunity, as the Bolsheviks were themselves badly divided over the issue of self-determination in not just Central Asia, but in the Caucasus and other frontiers as well. That debate over federalism would even pit Lenin against Stalin, which we'll cover in greater detail in a later episode. Lenin would advocate granting localities their autonomy, which would be useful propaganda for the communist cause, while Stalin stressed that integrated territories would be more useful, which might seem ironic given that Stalin himself was a Georgian, a people that had suffered under the Russian yoke themselves, but he was also power-hungry, so yeah, that adds up. And while that about covers the east to the end of 1918, there is still one final front to cover. The last section of Russia to touch on is one I probably should have covered last week, but left out as I didn't want to bounce around the map too hard, and that's the Baltic region. At the end of 1917 and start of 1918, Trotsky's tactics of dragging out peace negotiations with the Germans led the invaders into striking towards Petrograd. The Baltic peoples, already looking to detach themselves from a crumbling Russia, started setting up their own governments and looked to the Germans for sponsorship. Strictly speaking, the Baltics would become independent, although it was obvious that for the duration of the war, the German Empire would be the true power in the region. The treaty also didn't make the various Red Partisan groups go away either, and the inhabitants were caught between the occupiers and the Reds. Moreover, the White Faction began setting up in the area as well. Not all of the Loyalist Russian army managed to hightail it down south to join the Volunteer Army, you see. From the remnants of the old Northwestern Front emerged the Northern Corps, which at first coalesced around the city of Skov, wedged between the German and Bolshevik zones of control. The presence of the Germans proved to be a blessing for the Whites, though, as they received some support from the Germans, and the presence of the invaders so close by gave the Red Army pause when it came to actually try and deal with them. Skov and the surrounding area were very much not in the German zone of occupation, but keep in mind, the Bolsheviks were terrified that the Germans would break the treaty and take more of Russia, and didn't want to fight battles so close to their area of occupation. The collapse of the German Empire opened the floodgates, though, and the Red Army poured into the area in late November 1918. The Northern Corps, being badly equipped and outnumbered, opted to give way and retreat to Estonia. There, the force split into three bodies, one wanting to head south and link up with Denikin, another north towards Murmansk and the Entente landing there, and the last one wanted to stick around and strike back towards Skov. The north and south groups did not get very far. The southern group made it as far as the Latvian coast before getting drawn into battles with the Reds there, and the northern one couldn't find a way out of Estonia, 
opting to subordinate itself for the moment to that nation's new army, which I'm sure was fun for the prideful Tsarist officers. The main group remained independent, but as the Germans left, it appeared not to matter. The Red Army rushed into Estonia, occupying most of the nation and only being stopped at the gates of Raval, modern-day Tallinn, in February 1919, thanks to British and Finnish aid. This was another instance in the Baltic, like Riga against the Free Corps later on, where the guns of the British Royal Navy helped save the capital of one of the Baltic states. The Red Army had even more success in Latvia, as by spring 1919 almost the whole of the country had been occupied, which, yes, is exactly why the elites in that region opted to accept the help of the German Free Corps to battle the Reds back. While their fortunes would suffer over the course of the year, the start of 1919 saw the Red Army dominant in the Baltic region. And that's the first year of the Russian Civil War in a nutshell. Over the course of 1918, the distracted Bolshevik government had almost let the country slip from their fingers, but a lack of coordination on the part of the Whites and their Entente allies meant that there had been no knockout blow. And in the over-years time since the October Revolution, the Whites had also failed on putting together a mission statement to counter the Reds. Whereas the Bolsheviks promised a new world, the Whites could only aspire towards an old one that nobody really wanted back. And that was going to cost them as 1919 would prove to be the critical year of the Civil War. Yeah, the war typically gets counted as running all the way to 1922, but the outcome was decided in only its second year. The Whites would be at the peak of their powers and angling to break into the bastion of Red Russia, and as we all know, that didn't work out, but it was closer than later Soviet propaganda would like you to believe. Join me next week as we start that critical year, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.